On this episode of IT Visionaries, we sit down with Paul Scott Murphy, VP of Product Management, Big Data and Cloud at Wendisco, a provider of enterprise-ready, non-stop software solutions that enable globally distributed organizations to meet today's data challenges of secure storage, scalability, and availability. Throughout his career, Paul has focused on leadership, strategy, consulting, and product development for major Australian and international organizations. And today, Paul digs deeper into the principles of cloud technology, customer experience, and business strategies. Enjoy the conversation. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org, and we have in studio, Paul, what's going on? Hi, Ian. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. We're excited to talk about the disco today, distributed computing uh, and everything that you're doing at WAN Disco. But first, how did you get into technology? Uh, good starting point, I guess. Uh uh, like many people, I benefited from being born at the right time to begin with. Uh, <laughs> my, my childhood, I guess, coincided with the emergence of the personal computer and uh, with a, a father I, who was uh, familiar with uh, all things technical, being a civil engineer, uh, had a strong interest there too. And uh, in bringing home a PC to the house gave me my first introduction to technology. And I guess from there, the, the taste continued and uh, it's something that's interested me for a long time. Uh, growing up in Western Australia uh, meant that uh, I lived in an environment reasonably remote from where we stand today in Silicon Valley. But uh, like most things with technology, uh, particularly in the IT industry, uh, you don't need much in the way of resources to establish yourself there and, and build up an interest and, and learn about what's going on. So I took to that very early in life, I guess, and uh, here's, here's where I stand today. You know, it's funny. When I was in Australia, one of the things that was pretty obvious was how the technology, like the kind of flash to bang from something happens in Silicon Valley and then it reaches Australia. Um, it's got to go all the way through the earth. Uh, did you kind of feel like growing up in, in Australia that with the rise of technology that you were like instantly plugged in to what was going on because you could just do it across the web or, or was it something that you felt the opposite and you felt further removed from it? It's probably somewhere in between those two extremes. Uh, while you say today, yeah, an event happens here in, in California and it's immediately felt around the world and uh, quickly available to anybody working in IT in particular. Uh, I don't think going back you know, a quarter of a century, the, the same situation was quite there. Yeah. Uh, and certainly the types of organizations, uh, particularly in Perth where I grew up, that uh, had a strong bias around IT systems were, were really those traditional organizations in that part of the world. Uh, Australia is well known for a, an economy founded primarily on the holes in the ground from which we dig up minerals. Yeah. So a big mining economy. And uh, Perth, again, is the center for some of the biggest mining companies in the world. Uh, so if you were studying computer science or engineering in Western Australia at the time that I was, your most likely career path was to go and work for one of the big mining organizations to build out their internal systems, or for one of the suppliers that uh, sprung up around them to uh, 
invest in and, and grow the type of ecosystem around software applications to support the mining industry. Uh, less so today, uh, but it's certainly at the time that I was uh, growing up in Western Australia, uh, the path forward around IT was, was very set in place and, and fewer opportunities were there. Uh, that's changed over time. Um, the, the IT ecosystem in Australia today is a mix of uh, those sorts of environments still, uh, but also very strong uh, financial services industry there and a burgeoning startup industry as well uh, that I've got a lot of friends involved in that are uh, obviously responsible for some organizations that have done really well and uh, have a strong presence here in, in the US today. We'll get into distributed computing in a little bit, but it is interesting you know, with the rise of cloud, how having things on-prem really allows a lot of people around the world to have access to something that they might not have had before. You know, we have listeners in over 129 countries. And I, I think that, you know, especially you look at uh, how much has the, the that cloud computing has changed and how much still needs to go. Um, the access and availability is is just completely different, especially for distributed organizations. Uh, there is no doubt that the cloud is really one of the, the most fundamental shifts uh, in information technology over the last decade and is going to continue to be a fundamental shift and driver behind a lot of the change that we're seeing. Uh, Jeff Bezos, of course, is famous for constantly stating it's still day one and, and yeah. that's the ethos within the organization. Uh, Amazon Web Services really see the emergence of the cloud in exactly that form and rethinking uh, legacy approaches to building IT systems or to accommodating the scale of data that's present today is uh, fundamentally changed when you think about the opportunities that come forward. Uh, the emergence of the cloud means that a lot of the things that have been done in the past uh, can be addressed and challenged by uh, the differences in how readily uh, IT infrastructure can be acquired, the wealth of services and the opportunities that they bring forward to process data differently, to generate different outcomes, is really fundamentally different today than it was going back five or 10 years. And the cloud has been a significant driver for that and shows no signs of stopping. Uh, it's going to really uh, change the IT industry going forward, uh, even more so than we've seen it do so or do uh, so far. Um, and where would you say, like, where are people, where's the market at in their cloud journeys? I mean, I think this is one of those things that I think we especially in, in Silicon Valley, assume that people are further along their digital transformations than they are a lot of times? Like, what are you seeing from, uh, from your vantage point? Uh, from where we work at Wandisco, we, we come across a lot of organizations looking to move to the cloud. Uh, and that in itself is interesting. Uh, I think if you had come as an alien down to the planet Earth <laughs> and uh, looked at how the cloud is talked about today, you do so with an assumption that it is the de facto yeah. deployment platform for anything in uh, technology or IT in general. That's certainly not the case, and primarily because it's emerged over time and organizations that can use the cloud today have really adopted it at the outset for the build of new systems, uh, the more lightweight, perhaps customer-facing, direct customer-facing applications, uh, microservices or yeah. platforms, that it's easier to develop in the cloud and, and gives them the opportunity to make those things potentially more scalable from day one. But they're still primarily constrained by a large range of legacy applications, platforms, and uh, systems they've built themselves that were never designed with the cloud in mind, um, that have been developed as on-premises environments, 
that are constrained because of the, the nature of their need to consume information there as well. Uh, the volume of data that resides in systems outside of the cloud, uh, probably still larger than the volume of information that resides in the cloud today. Yeah. And that's going to change. But the, uh, the difficulties in taking the sorts of applications that are constrained and are restricted to running in existing on-premises uh, is a real challenge for organizations in moving to the cloud. So the market overall, yes, it's in an interim stage where uh, early adoption uh, has meant that the cloud has seen dramatic success uh, and been a, a real shift in where IT spending is occurring. But organizations uh, aren't able to fully take advantage of that for all of their existing platform systems and applications uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And that's certainly part of the reason why WANDISCO exists is to eliminate some of those challenges, uh, reduce the risk of migrating applications to the cloud, particularly where those applications are at scale using vast volumes of data. Taking a step back, so what, um, describe kind of your role and, and scope of responsibilities. How much time are you spending, you know, on internal things like employee experience? How much are you spending on, uh, on building product? How much are you spending with customers? Like what's the kind of breakdown there? Yeah, product management is certainly one of those interesting uh, roles in any organization where there's a variety of ways to address it, uh, yeah. a variety of ways to think about it. For Wandisco, again, you know, customer centricity is very important for us. And I, I would spend at least 50% of my time in direct contact with customers. Uh, one of the unique aspects of Wandisco as an organization, though, is that our technology, while we do sell direct to end users um, who can take our platform, take our products and apply it in their own environments and get real business value out of it, the majority of our business is done through channel partners. Yeah, uh, Many organizations would be using our technology without any knowledge of the fact that it's Wandisco driving yeah. what they're doing to support data consistency and data replication at scale. Uh, we sell through organizations like IBM, uh, through major cloud vendors as well, who embed our technology into their platforms. Uh, so uh, while I'd be talking to a direct customer on one day, I might be talking to a channel partner that leverages our technology. Uh, we have to treat them as both a customer of ours and as an enabler for the end user to eventually take advantage of what it is that we do. Yeah, I mean, and from a from a product standpoint, I mean, is it difficult to get feedback and refinement from the customer uh, directly in those kind of cases? Like, to, do you, I would imagine you have to go through the channel partner, but are you talking directly to that end user as well? Yeah, the interesting part about that is that uh, you might think it's difficult to get a sense of how a customer is actually using our technology without direct interaction with them, uh, which is certainly true in some cases. The flip side of that is that we get the benefit of seeing a broad range of ways in which our technology is used because yeah. we can aggregate that through our partners that embed our technology, OEM it or, or on-sell it. And uh, having that type of view gives us also the opportunity to get a broader view of where the opportunities lie going forward, perhaps some of the challenges that the actual end users are facing that they are uh, I can't communicate directly themselves because our partners have the opportunity to see that, to get visibility of that and to communicate with Wandisco about what it is that those end users are faced with and discuss with us and, and work jointly on ways in which we can uh, solve some of those problems uh, by looking at them in a slightly different way or improving what it is that we provide as a platform. So take a tool like Live Migrator. Can you just explain like what is kind of the use case for, for this type of tool? You know, when you launch this, like how long does it take to launch once it's in the market? How are you getting feedback? Uh, all that stuff. Sure. Well, Life Migrator is one of the products that WANDISCO uh, 
builds and sells. Uh, it's built on top of our underlying platform that we call Fusion. And Fusion itself is an embodiment of the core IP that was the foundation of Wayne Disco uh, back in 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, our core intellectual property allows us to bring together distributed systems in a way that isn't possible uh, so that applications or environments that would otherwise be incapable of working with one another can now coordinate their activities and work towards a shared outcome. And we apply that in a whole variety of ways, um, using this approach around consensus to uh, replicate, uh, for example, source code repositories that many of the organizations here in Silicon Valley use mm -hmm. across their development groups to keep you know, developers on different sides of the globe in, in sync with one another, using and accessing the same information at the same time. Uh, what we've done more recently with that technology is apply this same fusion platform to the challenges around replicating and keeping data at scale consistent so that every organization with access to large volumes of data can now take advantage of multiple environments to apply that. So when you think about that and you think about that in conjunction with the emergence of cloud technologies in particular, it opens up an opportunity for people to use our platform, the Fusion platform, to bring their data at scale to the cloud. So Life Migrator is the embodiment of that. Uh, as a product, uh, it was introduced uh, about 12 months ago, uh, specifically for the purpose of de-risking, making more efficient and automating the migration of data at scale to the cloud. Mm -hmm. The trick that we play with Live Migrator, uh, because we have the Fusion platform underlying it, is that we can do all of those things, right? efficient, consistent data replicated to the cloud automatically without needing to disrupt business operations while it's underway. So your applications using large volumes of data on premises can continue to do that while our technology takes care of making sure that any changes they make to their data sets are replicated faithfully with guaranteed consistency into cloud environments as well. That opens up the opportunity for an organization that wants to take advantage of the cloud, but has been constrained by the fact that their applications need to continue running on premises to do so with a, a lot less risk and without disruption to their business. Do you have any favorite kind of, you know, use cases or customer stories? I don't know if you can share those of places where you've seen this type of stuff kind of be a game changer? Oh, yeah. We've, we've got many examples of, of customers that have used our technology to, to really fundamentally change uh, how easily and quickly they can either move to the cloud or uh, move between environments of their own control. Uh, some good examples. Uh, we have a customer, a semiconductor manufacturer in Asia, who had a need to maintain operation of their fabrication plant while bringing across four petabytes to an entirely separate physical location. How big is that? That sounds very big. Uh, well, the, the process took them three months, but over that three-month period, they weren't uh, at any point required to stop the operation of their existing uh, data center that the semiconductor fabrication plant communicated with and where it stored its information. Now, information for a, a semiconductor manufacturer is like for all organizations today, the, the lifeblood of their industry. Yeah, absolutely. Keeping track of yields and keeping track of the uh, processes that they're running in those plants is critical to getting the capital returns on the major investments that they need to make. Uh, margins are very thin there, uh, and any disruption to business operations is really uh, a killer for that sort of organization. They need to keep things running, but they also need to account for change. And this is a common theme that we see across all of our customers. Besides just moving to the cloud, what these organizations are really trying to do is build out a way in which they can keep their organization able to accommodate change over time. The change today might be better taking advantage of cloud infrastructure, 
moving applications there to use services or a compute capacity that they don't have access to otherwise. But in many cases, going forward, uh, the change might be something different. Um, keeping flexible and the ability to run IT systems without being you know, locked into one environment is really fundamental to getting value out of what you're building. Uh, you don't want to build systems today that are going to be thrown away tomorrow. You need to build the sorts of systems or adjust your systems to be capable of adapting to changes over time. It's funny. So we interviewed um, one of the executives of the company, Katera, which is a uh, essentially a, a, a company that allows you to build like prefabricated architecture at scale. Essentially, they raised like a billion dollars uh, SoftBank Vision Fund company. Um, and one of their executives came from the semiconductor industry. And he was like, in the semiconductor industry, like your delta is like point whatever it was, 0 0.01. And in construction, it's like 40%. <laughs> it's like, how are you know margins that bad? But it really speaks to the semiconductor industry and how dialed in you need to be in order to make sure that there's no waste. And and I think, you know, the idea of physical waste, especially, you know, back in Silicon Valley when Silicon Valley was about silicon chips and all of that stuff, um, this idea of waste, I think, was really expertly crafted. But in terms of like kind of digital waste, it's not something that I don't think people realized with data and with all of this until there was the... Uh, the correct tools to be able to monitor and track that stuff. Yeah, sure. Uh, the interesting thing about the point you're making just now is that in terms of efficiency, the, the types of uh, challenges that low margin, high scale businesses like semiconductor manufacturers face today are exactly the sorts of challenges that other industries are going to be facing in the future. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yep. It's easy to look forward to that now and say, well, where this business is going means that we'll need to account for greater scale going forward. We'll need to account for thinning margins and the need to be more efficient in our operations. Right? Retailers in that space, financial services in that space, telecommunications has been there for a long time, uh, high-tech manufacturing there for a long time as well. But look across every, every industry, uh, automotive manufacturing, uh, automotive operations, yeah, broader sets of retail infrastructure, margins are thinning, scale is increasing, and the sorts of challenges that are faced by these organizations, the way in which they're addressing those challenges should really be looked to as examples of either things to avoid or good strategies to uh, approach for organizations yet to face those same challenges. When you sit down with like a CIO or a CTO and you're talking about, you know, the digital transformation or when you're talking about cloud migration and hybrid cloud, multi-cloud, like, and you're, you're taking, let's say for this example, someone who has not started a cloud migration at all yet. So from scratch, what is that, you know, what are those first steps like? Like if it's your first project and you're thinking there, you know, there has to be an easier way. We know it's not a simple process, but uh, what are some of the things that you would kind of recommend to, to that person? Uh, it's actually pretty rare that we'll come across an organization for whom they haven't yet attempted to move to the cloud or migrate applications or systems to the cloud. But uh, if I was faced with uh, talking to a CIO who was really taking an open book stance to exactly. yeah. that, an that's approach kind of to what cloud I mean. migration. Like uh, a principles yeah. first kind of approach to it is, is kind of what I'm thinking. The sort of advice I'd be offering is to focus on the fundamental business outcomes that they're trying to achieve. Uh, everything that should be done in IT has to be aligned with business strategy to get value out of it. If the business strategy is one of efficiency, uh, understand where inefficiencies lie 
in how your systems are constrained today and what opportunities are presented with the advent of cloud infrastructure underpinning some of your existing systems. If the opportunities lie in other areas around uh, improving margins or in retaining staff in a better way with the development and experience and environments that the cloud entails, or just coping with scale, uh, there's lots of ways in which you look, need to look at aligning the business strategy directly with IT and from there build out the approach that you want to take to moving to the cloud. Uh, where we see the challenges being common across these organizations are in some of the points that we've talked through already, right? the need to maintain business operations, yeah. to do that at scale while moving to the cloud. Uh, it's simple for a small scale application that doesn't use a lot of data um, and can perhaps suffer the impact of a minor outage over a weekend while you bring in your IT group and have everybody work towards completing the task on a, on a Sunday afternoon to move that application to the cloud. Yeah. But if you're talking about the sorts of things that were faced by that semiconductor manufacturer or a large retailer with petabytes or exabytes of information, you can't move that information instantly. Uh, you need the opportunity to use the same data while it's underway being moved to the cloud. Uh, otherwise, your, your business stops and you might as well be giving up. I have a question for you. Why does Hadoop have a logo of an elephant? <laughs> Well, my interpretation of that, and, and I'm, I guess this is apocryphal here, is that Doug Cutting, one of the original founders of the Hadoop uh, architecture, at the time of its introduction when he was working at Yahoo, had uh, his son, or, or one of his children, I think, had a, a pet elephant. No, no yeah, what? A pet elephant. Um, you'll, you'll see Doug, if you've seen him present on, in conferences, sometimes bring this actual toy elephant up on stage, right? Its name is uh, Hadoop. And that was the basis for the, the naming of his, uh, his infrastructure, his architecture, uh, during its emergence when the development of that was underway at Yahoo. No way. What a world. That's a great story. I had no idea. Huh. Who knew? Um, do you think, like, when you talk to organizations about Hadoop, where on their, like, how prevalent is that in the organizations that you're talking to? Yeah, Hadoop is an example of the uh, technology term that's uh, all-encompassing these days. Yeah. Uh, it's a very broad ecosystem of underlying technologies uh, and systems that most organizations are using uh, if they are doing anything with data at scale. Uh, Hadoop itself spans a whole variety of uh, technologies from uh, open source yeah. environments like the Apache ecosystem, but its broad aspect is to cover uh, storage at scale, and compute at scale. And the storage platform that underlies Hadoop was designed very well in the early days to be a, an extensible uh, storage system uh, with multiple implementations of what's called the Hadoop file system, or now a Hadoop compatible file system, able to be used within these environments. Uh, that was a great decision from the early architects of Hadoop itself, the ability to extend how organizations use a broad set of technologies in a very flexible way was one of the keys to its success. Uh, what you see today, though, I mean, if you, you do the, the standard Google trends uh, around Hadoop as a search term, you'll have seen, you know, going back around three or four years, a peak of interest in Hadoop as a term, and then over time, a slow decline of interest in the Hadoop ecosystem overall. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean the technology is going away. Like many things in IT, uh, it's just where the focus of interest lies. But Hadoop as a platform underlies many other types of systems and technologies, uh, particularly in the cloud. 
organizations that have invested in Hadoop, you know, going back five or six years, uh, made their capital investments in large on-premises data center infrastructure to support holding data at scale and operating against it. Uh, today, of course, those same investments are reaching the point where they've been written off, uh, written down, um, and the ability for those organizations to move to more modern infrastructure, particularly in the cloud, is now very ripe. And what it means is that those companies, those organizations that have been uh, heavily invested in Hadoop, uh, have the right point in time at which it makes sense, both economically and technically, to look at how the, the large sets of data, the large processing platforms that they've built up around that, uh, can take better advantage of cloud infrastructure. And certainly, we've seen that trend over time, where the interest in Hadoop in the early days, um, very strong for a particular class of application and data processing. And as time has progressed, moving to the cloud is very critical for organizations that were otherwise investing in Hadoop. Got it. And so, so when you're talking about Hadoop to cloud use cases and, uh, and examples, um, that's what you're talking about. And those, those folks are moving to whether it's AWS or otherwise. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing about talking about something like Hadoop to cloud is that it's a very generic way of talking about a general trend of cloud adoption for large-scale data yeah. systems. Uh, it may well be that Hadoop components reside in the cloud for that type of migration. Uh, what we see, though, is that organizations are treating this, as we've suggested before, from the level of what is the business value for me in taking a cloud migration strategy? What can I achieve there that I could not achieve on-premises? Mm -hmm. The sorts of technology platforms that underlie that migration to the cloud may or may not include aspects of Hadoop. They may take advantage of different or alternative processing platforms, analytics like uh, Databricks or Apache Spark, uh, maybe more central to what they need to achieve in the cloud. So from Wandisco's perspective, this means that the same base technology we apply across our product set simply needs to be uh, tuned into the environments that these organizations have an interest in. And we've got some interesting work underway today to specifically target Wandisco's core intellectual property for the migration use case going from on-premises analytic applications into cloud-native analytic environments. And it's a really interesting area for us going forward. What about like multi-vendor? We mentioned before, at least I think I talked about the notion of uh, lock-in being a, a critical thing that needs to be addressed by organizations, again, particularly those that operate at scale. Uh, being able to take advantage of expected changes coming forward is one aspect of um, what I'd call lock-in in general. And again, organizations that uh, want to build out a, an efficient IT strategy need to consider how they will take advantage perhaps of multiple cloud environments or multiple technologies within a cloud. Um, they'll at least need to be able to put in place a strategy by which they can safely guard against expected changes in the future. IT is not a static environment. Everything totally. is changing all the time. And an organization needs to take that change and the potential for change into account. A multi-vendor strategy, particularly for cloud adoption, would be one aspect of that. Um, so looking forward to change in the cloud requires an approach whereby you avoid locking yourself into any one vendor. Um, and one of the, the key aspects of uh, dealing with that in the cloud is, well, what do I do with my data? Uh, data that I hold in one cloud environment isn't easily made available to another cloud environment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you need to be able to take advantage of multiple cloud environments in an efficient way for large volumes of data if you want to avoid locking yourself in to any one cloud vendor. Um, the other driver for it comes from a regulatory perspective, where we see many organizations who are beholden by a regulator, particularly in financial services, 
not to hold all of their data in a single cloud vendor's environment. Yeah. They need to adopt a multi-vendor strategy from day one. Uh, Wandisco's technology fits into that very well. Right? It's the core purpose behind what we do, the ability to use and access the same information across multiple locations that could be between different cloud environments or indeed on-premises and cloud infrastructure as well. You know, it's, it's funny. So a lot of the CIOs that we talk to, especially behind the scenes, um, you know, I think one of the major concerns is that my bill just keeps going up and uh, yeah, and that lock-in feeling. What's, what would be kind of your, uh, you know, if you're, if you're sitting around talking to a group of CIOs about like how to avoid the lock-in feeling, you know, and avoid the, the bill just going up and up and up, what, what's like, what's the recourse? Again, an interesting thing that I've seen in the cloud industry is that the more savvy cloud vendors are offering proactive ways in which their own customers can minimize the spend with that vendor. Yeah. Uh, you'll look at AWS offering tooling around their cloud services to better track and monitor and respond to uh, the usage of the cloud infrastructure from that cost perspective. So an organization who's fearful around the increasing spend on a monthly basis that they have with their cloud vendor certainly has available tools that they can take advantage of to keep track of that, yeah. monitor and respond to it. Um, that doesn't solve the problem though. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, the spend yeah. may well continue to go up. Just having visibility of it isn't an answer to that. Um, you need to address that in a couple of ways. Obviously standard financial controls, ensuring that your IT strategy is aligned with your business strategy, that the business strategy incorporates an element of cost control and the return on investment for what you're doing in the cloud. If there is no return on investment, either short or long-term, uh, what is the point? Businesses need to operate from the perspective of keeping that in mind and putting in place the right controls and processes to ensure that they achieve exactly that. You don't think that it's like table stakes? I mean, I, I, I would posit that some folks think that they need to do certain things as table stakes uh, and not, not pull the business use cases out of it. I mean, is that something you've seen? Uh, particularly for bigger businesses, again, where uh, there's the opportunity there to uh, experiment and keep a hand in various aspects of what's, uh, what's emerging in the cloud uh, forms a part of their business strategy. Uh, the ability to rem remain aware of that, uh, keep agile in an environment that's undergoing change. So table stakes in terms of cloud investment uh, certainly plays a role in some organizations thinking, uh, but you really need to look at this from the, the broader view of what's being achieved around the increasing uh, ubiquity of information technology for every type of organization. Uh, the sort of spend that a company had last year on addressing their customer requirements uh, is different to the spend that they have this year on doing the same. Yeah, that's a good And point. there's obviously, you know, across every industry, an increasing dominance of technology underpinning how organizations better meet customer needs, better solve the challenges that their customers are faced with, and perhaps win new business as well. So I think, you know, the, the notion that uh, increasing spend in cloud or in IT in general is a sign of something that needs to be changed in an organization is, is probably a misnomer, right? So it's probably a good sign that they're investing in the right place and taking best advantage of what technology can bring to bear, but they have to measure that against the customer outcomes and the business value that it introduces. I want to talk IoT a little bit, you know, as we mentioned at the top, like, you know, data is the, you know, the data is, is the resource of the future kind of idea. With that being the case, so many devices, internal customer devices with IoT, how much data people are collecting. Where do you think that that IoT is is going in terms of like data collection and being able to pull, you know, real insights from it? 
the the IT ecosystem is of itself such significant scale today that it's introducing terms and trends that uh, weren't known a few years ago. Uh, talking about things like edge processing, yeah. edge storage, uh, was not a terminology that uh, people were familiar with before the emergence of IoT architectures. No, it's it's something that uh, we were just talking about in IT Visionaries planning meeting the other day about having some uh, some podcast content around state of the edge for sure. Yeah, so edge computing's uh, again a, a trend and a what will become a dominant portion of the IT environment in general. The volume of data being generated by uh, systems that are increasingly enabled through technology is only going to accelerate. Uh, this is not slowing down. Uh, we work with some customers, uh, you know, particularly in the automotive industry, where IoT devices embedded into vehicles are collecting volumes of data uh, vastly beyond what they're capable of storing or processing. And the types of architectures that they build in response to that uh, needs to be multi-layered with edge processing to filter and aggregate data before they replicate and bring that into a central location for subsequent processing and storage and the uses to which they want to apply it uh, to build out autonomous vehicles or improve the uh, maintenance schedules on their uh, fleets of vehicles uh, across the customer base in general. That's just one example of the types of information processing and storage that IoT thinking has generated uh, this is going to, again, be uh, prevalent across uh, all sorts of industries where it hasn't in the past. And uh, with the increasing introduction of technology across uh, all sorts of industries and organizations, IoT will play a, a really large role in that. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that that introduces uh, extra load in terms of data processing, data yeah. storage, uh, data communication. And the, the infrastructure that needs to be built out to support that uh, is going to be fundamentally different from the types of infrastructure that these organizations are familiar with in the past. They need to quickly adapt to uh, changing trends in IT, changing availability of cloud infrastructure in particular to accommodate that. The benefit of going with the cloud in terms of processing information for IoT applications is that the scale that the cloud vendors offer is well beyond what any individual organization can achieve. Themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. We work with some of the largest organizations in all sorts of industries and uh, they are well below the capacity that they require to process the information that they have on hand today. They don't see any option for doing that themselves. And the cloud is really the only answer to uh, the burgeoning volumes of data that IIT introduces. Yeah. I mean, you look at like the gaming and entertainment industry, which I know that you all work with, like, I mean, you just take like any game, like, uh, you know, Red Dead Redemption, which is, you know, wins all these awards, like the amount of data that that game produced or like a Fortnite or something like that. I mean, you're talking about off the charts amounts of data. It's just like you said, there's just no real option to keep things on prem anymore for that. It's a great example because, again, that's one of the industries that, you know, if you look back 10 years, uh, online gaming uh, didn't really exist. Yeah, totally. Uh, the vast volume of, of information that it's generated today and will continue to generate going forward is something that nobody has planned for, uh, but it's emerging and, uh, well, it's past emerging, right? This is a, you know, already cemented itself in, in the need for growth in uh, networking and, and storage and the emergence of the cloud. So, yeah, we work with many of the... Uh, the implementers and developers of those types of distributed gaming systems around many of those exact challenges, the ability that they require to share data effectively, to have it accessible across cloud environments on a global scale is really mind blowing, right? It's, it's at uh, the volume of information well beyond what you would have thought of 
just back a few years again. So again, a great example of uh, IoT or uh, the sorts of information that you're collecting at the edge being critical to how these businesses operate. Because again, they are uh, operating in environments where every piece of information they have access to uh, is of importance to them growing their business going forward. They need to understand their customers. They need to respond to changes in the real world uh, quickly. Uh, you know, Fortnite's a great example of that, the speed yeah. with which Epic Games has responded to changes in their players' behavior has been really one of the drivers for the success behind that game. And uh, you'll see that continue with other games that emerge going forward. Isn't it funny, right? Like the best game, the best movie, the best, you know, whatever, the best experience always comes down to as the best digital experience, right? Like if you can have the best customer experience, then you're going to have a great game. But like those sort of things, like, you know, it doesn't matter if the precision of, you know, you throwing a Pokemon, if it doesn't get within 10 feet of, of the thing, yeah, that's that's pretty annoying and bad for gameplay. But if you can't play in real time with your friends because it's, you know, two seconds laggy, then like it's unplayable. It's a great example of the fact that customer expectations only increase over time. Uh, as you work with you know, one company or perhaps interact with a game that has these capabilities, you naturally expect it from others. Uh, there's no stepping back. And the sorts of organizations that are going to win business going forward are those that are going to adapt quickly to those customer demands, anticipate what's coming forward and, and respond to them as quickly as possible. And it makes you think of just, you know, we talk a lot about customer experience on the show. Uh, and obviously we went pretty deep into the weeds uh, on a lot of the stuff today. But, you know, you go back to like the use case of the 13 year old kid that's playing uh you know, playing a, a video game with his dad who's on a work trip on the other side of the world uh, or, you know, playing with his, his sister and his mom or something like that, who expects that seamless experience. Like uh, if you don't have the correct architecture and infrastructure, it's going to be hard to be able to do that, you know, when these things are 10 times more complex in five years. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I have teenage boys and uh, it's easy for me to get some insight into how they respond to uh, a laggy internet connection or oh my a, goodness. a detrimental experience in a game that they're playing. Uh, they're fickle consumers and they'll quickly move on to what's next because they have a wealth of things that they can move on to. Technology's been the enabler for that uh, and organizations need to respond to that challenge. Yeah, and you spend so much money to get them there in the first place, right? Like so much marketing dollars, so much stuff to get them uh, to be able to use it to have them uh, switch in two seconds because your tech stack. Um, all right, let's get in the lighting round. These questions are fast and easy, and you haven't seen them before. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce and the Lightning platform. You can go to salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn about employee experience on the world's number one CRM. It's the employee experience platform. I need to ask you an employee experience question, actually. We'll do that in the lightning round. Um, I'm curious about innovation at Disco. Thanks again to Salesforce and Lightning platform. Check them out, salesforce.com slash employee experience. Lightning round questions, Paul, you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Oh, you've, you've hit me with a tough one at the very beginning here. Indeed. Uh, the app that I find most fun on my phone is probably those that can keep me in touch with my family and friends. So WhatsApp is great for me. Uh, I've got family traveling all around the world. Uh, keeping in touch with them on a daily basis uh, keeps me interested and engaged. Favorite team, sports or otherwise? Uh, I have to... Uh, Call out quickly the, the Jaguars at the International High School where my, my youngest son started school there today. So I've got a new favorite team, uh, his soccer team, the Jaguars. That, that's where it is for me. I love it. 
That's awesome. Uh, favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Uh, my favorite podcast is an Australian podcast called Conversations. It's put out by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, Richard Feidel uh, is the host for that and a collection of uh, very interesting conversations, as the title might suggest, with a whole range of uh, people. Uh, very Australian. So if anyone's interested in uh, understanding Australian culture a little bit more, I'd strongly advise you to start there. Favorite place, if someone's visiting Australia, where should they, a certain thing, an activity, whatever it is, what should they do? There are so many iconic Australian uh, sites and landmarks that I think many people are familiar with. And I'd suggest all of those uh, are good opportunities. Australia, of course, is, is really famous for its outdoors, the outback, its surf culture, uh, the great weather. Anything that gets you outdoors in Australia, you know, go to the beach, visit the Great Barrier Reef, sail on Sydney Harbour. Uh, these are all experiences that are, uh, are most unlike anything else you'll, you'll get anywhere else in the world. And uh, you know, take advantage of that as much as you can if you have the time to visit Australia. Technology you're most excited about moving forward? The thing that excites me about technology moving forward, I think, is the intersection of uh, creativity and technology. Uh, technology by itself is uh, fantastic, but the sorts of things that it enables creative people to do is what really excites me about the IT industry in general. Uh, I come from a family where we've got a whole mix of uh, interests across uh, across everyone. My wife is an actor. Uh, my son's a, no a music composer. Uh, I work in IT and I've got another son who's uh, probably going to follow my footsteps as well. But the intersection of all these things is really what makes uh, life interesting for me. And knowing that uh, creativity in the future is going to be a much stronger determinant of success for people in general, as technology itself becomes ubiquitous. Uh, there's many things that you can do today that are going to be easier to do tomorrow. So being creative about that and responding to the sorts of things that can't be automated, I think is going to be where, uh, where technology is going to excite many people going forward. We're always looking for good voice actors. I might need to get your contact info for, uh, see what she's up to. And she out on anything cool lately? Uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's performing in a production in uh, the Napa Valley of uh, a musical called 9 to 5. Cool. Uh, it's in rehearsals at the moment. Uh, following that, you'll find her uh, in a performance of a musical uh, here in San Francisco called Groundhog Day. So keep your eyes open for that one. Nice. Love it. Paul, this has been awesome. Any final thoughts? Any, uh, anything to plug here? Uh, oh, Open Rex on the team. You're hiring? Uh, yeah, Wendisco is always interested in hiring. Uh, we're a global organization. We've got offices in the UK, here in the US, uh, in Australia, across Asia. Uh, we've got open recs across engineering, uh, marketing, product areas within the company. We, we like to keep our, uh, our organization diverse and inclusive. Uh, we're looking for smart people, capable people, uh, able to do what we need to do and to keep our customers happy. So if you're interested in, in what we've talked about today, get onto the Wandisco website and, and learn about the open recs we have there. Yeah. What about employee experience? You got some, uh, anything, any innovation stuff that you got going on? Any, uh, any citizen developers, any people, uh, you know, any hackathon, stuff like that? I think, uh, like most organizations in the Valley, uh, those are all, uh, things that we, we encourage across the team and, and we certainly have those types of programs in place. One of the interesting things about Wayne Disco is that, uh, it was founded with uh, a very entrepreneurial mindset and our CEO, David Richards maintains that today. And he has a strong interest not only in encouraging future entrepreneurs, but uh, establishing the, the education patterns required to make it possible for people who have uh, the potential to make a difference in the world, able to do so more readily. Uh, he and his wife run a foundation called the David and Jane Richards Foundation. Oh, cool. Um, primarily doing work in the UK, 
around establishing uh, the right type of data science programs in schools and uh, universities and encouraging uh, people with uh, the opportunities that they might not have otherwise available to them. So uh, that forms a strong part of the ethos within Wandisco as well, the ability to ensure that uh, anybody within the company has the opportunity to uh, try out new areas, to look into places that uh, might not be a regular part of their day job, uh, come forward in innovative ways. We're always open to innovation. I love it, Paul. Thanks for hanging out. Really appreciate you uh, stopping by the studio. Yeah, likewise. It's been great. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.